Dog movie, dog movie, dog movie. Yeah. Lesser dog movie. Lesser dog movie. Lesser, Lesser dog, dog movie. movie. Look, it's still a good dog. It's st- still a good movie. It's not that good. Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast about me watching all the Disney Animated Canon. And me, who's already seen them, coming along to watch. Uh, this is Talon, he, him. I'm Fox, she, her. And this and this episode, we watched 1961's 101 Dalmatians. We sure did. Mm. First up, we do the plot in 60 seconds. And guess whose turn it is? Oh, it is mine, I guess. I think I can manage that. Your time starts now. Uh, there is a Dalmatian who lives with a human and they are both bachelors until the dog decides he wants to get nasty so he picks out a couple of ladies uh, and goes in a rage, forces a meat cute in a most doggish fashion. The meat is cute, the humans marry, the dogs shag, 15 puppies happen and everyone's very happy until our human character's uh, old schoolmate shows up demanding that the puppies be given unto her. Uh, the family refuses, the woman arranges to have the puppies kidnapped, along with a large, large pile of other puppies because she wants to make them into coats. The dogs go and rescue their children and make their long way home, basically becoming war escape celebrity movie at this point, (laughs) until they get home, uh, dump 99 dogs on their humans and live happily ever after. So you did go over. That's fine. But I'm going to give you some points on that one, especially especially because you did do, you made the rookie blunder of you started with the, <gasps> that's just lost time. I did, you're right. I wasted a second inhaling and that's all I lost to buy in the end. Yep. Ah, oh, well, I don't think this movie is good enough to justify a retake. Not really, no. I mean, it's not bad, but it's very... It's very fluffy. It's very nothingy. It's not got substance. What, what we have here is the is a true Disney first, a really remarkable thing. This is the first true example of Disney mediocrity. It's true. Everything we haven't liked previously has been like actually we disliked it. Whereas mm-hmm. this is just like it's fine, but I wouldn't go out of my way for it. There should be more stuff in this movie that I feel strongly about. There should be more stuff in this movie that I feel strongly about. This, there are so many dogs in this movie. And there's a lot of work done to give a whole variety of dogs character. Yeah. There's a dog spy network with heroic uh, assignments and, you know, mm-hmm. old hands who help people out. And it it's really quite cool. But in execution, it's just kind of boring. Yeah. I feel like we're back to the, the sort of lackluster direction that plagued a lot of the early ones. Mm. We just sort of... Things happen. There's not a well-maintained tension curve. But we are getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Uh, because this is all leading me to talk about my pre-existing relationship with this movie. Which is not what you'd think it would be. Since I have 
Long time listeners, and by that I mean the last two episodes, will remember that I am extremely a dog person. Um, and you know, I definitely had clips of this on my Disney dog specials VHS. I, I'm familiar with all of the bits of this that they thought were like highlights. Like the slapstick dog fight and the sneaking puppies out of the mansion and all that stuff. But I just, I never loved it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if as a child I was astute enough to find the same flaws in it that I do now, but I just never got attached to it the same way. Had you ever seen this before? Not in any kind of entire way, but I think that, I think that having seen the whole movie, this is a movie that benefits greatly from a supercut. <laughs> so yeah. is it Wonderful World of Disney? Yeah. Yeah, if you get the wonderful world of Disney and say, hey, look, we need to make 15 minutes out of our 70-minute movie, like, you can probably find a good good 15 minutes to cover all the bases. Yeah, they did, like, a Reader's Digest of this film. Yeah. Where it's like, you get the you get the bit where they're having puppies. Uh, sometimes you get the bit with just the different humans walking the different dogs with the, like, ah, dogs look like their owners and it's cute and funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the the bits in the mansion with sneaking the puppies out, and then comedy fight, and then you get the the Labrador bit with the moving trucks, and that's all you really need to see. I I think it would be it would be remiss to not mention that really the first place I learned about this movie was from the Simpsons episode parodying it. <laughs> I that yeah, is the place where going. I learned the plot of this movie, and the plot of a TV show that has to go for twenty two minutes with commercial breaks is very different to the kind of TV show that wants... Sorry, this thing, which wanted to live in cinemas for 70 minutes of your time. So, I, like, watching this, I was surprised at how much boring padding it had. Yeah, and it should have been really exciting padding. Which, I guess, brings us neatly to the double take. <laughs> there, I have surprisingly few of these, to be honest. Um, there's just, just a few things here and there that I wouldn't have noticed, like a, a particularly funny newspaper headline sight gag. I think you noticed this one as well. <laughs> we both yelled aloud. <laughs> what is it? Uh, Tories admit this puts us in the red. Yeah, there was a much smaller headline above it about, I think, trade disputes, but it did have the impression yeah. that some dogs were stolen and the Tories are like, well, this is why the budget isn't balanced. <laughs> Yes, you may aren't meant to be related, but it's funny to think that they are. Mm -hmm. Especially since apparently 15 dogs going missing is front page news and get Scotland Yard on the phone. Yeah. I feel like Anita must be connected or something. Mm. She obviously went to a posh finishing school. Because Cruella is is coded as being fabulously wealthy. Yeah, she's an heiress. Mm. There's also a great headline later on, actually, when the the, uh, two uh, thugs are reading newspapers in the truck and one of the newspapers just has the headline, Fantastic Boom! (laughs) That's all. Nothing else. (laughs) Must have been good. 1960s Britain. What could possibly be going wrong at that point? (laughs) Yeah, um, I, let's see. Uh, I had forgotten that they almost have a, a stillborn puppy. Yep. That was a surprisingly dark thing in this airy little nothing of a movie. <laughs> like, uh, and and then immediately after noticing it and going, wow, that's darker than I remembered, uh, I got really mad at it for being like, well, what you really need to make sure childbirthing goes smoothly is a man who just won't give up. Because <laughs> I... No, the three women involved clearly couldn't have done a better job of this. I I would say that as far as, like, character moments to make you realize that, no, this character is 100% as good as, they, as we've been treating them is, this guy <laughs> resuscitates a dead puppy 
that's pretty up there it, on it's your... It's true, it's true. I get they were trying to puff Roger up. It just made me a little cranky in the... Oh, uh, yeah. The grand oeuvre of uh, everything involved with babies being women's work until it's not, and then it's very serious men's business. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it, it, it's, it's definitely condescending and misogynistic uh, in a grander obvious... scheme. Yeah. Yeah. But within context, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Dogs are heroes. People who believe dogs are heroes. It's very straightforward. We've even got a hero cat in this movie. Yeah. Which uh, is, is unusual for Disney. Though, no, the cat has to uh, subjugate the cat, you know, subjugate the cat's intentions to dogs. It is through dogs this cat is redeemed. Well, yeah, but we've also kind of got like a blackout of Baldrick thing going on here. Where oh, the, yeah. The dog who's in charge is clearly a ding dong. Mm-hmm. And the cat knows what's really up. Yep. Um, but yeah, those those were my only double take bits. I assume you have none since you, yeah, no. you don't have a, a pre-existing uh, memory of this. Well, I, I I have kind of a double take and it plays oh, into it plays into some stuff with the the animation, which we'll talk about in a bit, just for the structure's sake, real quick before I go there. <laughs> eyelash watch. Oh, oh my god, I forgot to eyelash watch. I should have been checking out puppies at least. I think this is one where very clearly boys do not have eyelashes because mm-hmm. they're also used to differentiate boy dogs from girl dogs. Yeah. You know, in case we couldn't tell what gender a fucking dog was. Purdy has like the edges of like really interestingly sculpted eyelashes. Like because it's just a <laughs> thick line, it has the impression that she's just got like killer wings, I guess. <laughs> Doesn't she get actual eyelashes? Um, not in any of the shots I noticed, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say authoritatively. Huh. I had to look closer. I thought she had individually drawn eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Just realized Anita and Perdita Ryan. Oh, yeah, they're After all tweed. these years. Yeah. Well, she chose that name. She did that on purpose. Yeah. She, <laughs> She's a dog. She named her dog as a member of her family. Which fits with one of my notes, which is these two got married alone in a church with no one present but their dogs. They are fucking nerds and they're meant for each other. That is, in fact, one of my other notes. <laughs> which is pretty, honestly, it's pretty great. It's kind of cute, yeah. That whole wedding, that whole wedding scene has like a bunch of like little things to think about, like the fact that the dogs are allowed in the church. That's pretty interesting. Uh, the whole place is empty; they're dressed in normal clothes, and the gigantic fuck off stained glass background. It's <laughs> a weird one, isn't it? It's like this movie knew that they would have a lot of white shots and nothing shots for the later parts of the movie, <laughs> so they were like, "Okay, what are we going to do to keep the background artists doing shit?" Well, I mean, the backgrounds here are, like, obviously a huge departure from, from what we've just been seeing, mm-hmm. yeah, both in Lady and the Trap, which had generally realistic backgrounds that were fucking gorgeous, mm-hmm. and Sleeping Beauty, which had beautiful, slightly surreal storybook backgrounds, which are also fucking gorgeous. Um, and this is, like, this is a world of difference. This is, like, a... They're very detailed, but detailed is in, like, crowded, and there's a lot going on, but... It's mostly line work. Uh, it's it's presented with that like offset. I, does the would it make sense if I said sketchy color? Well, I was going to move on with my double take to talk about how I had it in my head that this is a much older film than it is. I ah. I thought that the Hundred One Dalmatians was like a fifties or forties Disney movie. Uh, or or a collection of Disney shorts that they later on compiled into a movie because it has a very uh, because it has a very sketchy art style. There's a lot of points where you see guidelines still partially in place. None of this is a criticism, mind you. I think that um, the animation and the movement all looks great, and I think that for this movie in particular, with the amount of um, 
for the amount of animation you have going on in a whole bunch of different scenes, like you will have uh, like probably not actually a hundred puppies. It's probably more like 40 puppies because brains are bad at scale, <laughs> but there are shots where 40 puppies will stick their heads up out of containers and blink. And there's a lot of stuff happening there. And I, I think it worked really well. I, I'm glad you noticed this. Uh, you are in fact spotting what Disney is going to be criticized for, for the next decade or two or three. Oh boy. Remember how you talked about the, the studio being in kind of dire straits mm-hmm. after the, the expenditure and the losses of Sleeping Beauty? Uh, they they are going back into dark times now. Um, I don't think most of these movies are that bad. Um, especially not compared to the Golden Age stuff that gets so much love. Like, I'd still rather watch any of these than I would watch Snow White or Pinocchio. Yeah. Um, and it might just be because I grew up on it, but I also really love that that sketchy roughness that that is so definitive of these films for i mean basically until we hit the disney renaissance this is what you're gonna see yeah some of them will look a bit more polished uh some of them will look a bit less polished but this one's a good i think uh expectation setter in mm-hmm. terms of roughness and we can talk about that further when we talk about the box office at the end because there's some interesting details <laughs> playing in all through that my only other note about the swaggle watch is we have seen our first proper swaggle who swaggled? I missed it. The the um the tall, thin burglar is holding a door, shaking his head as if to say no, talking and raising and lowering his head while he's bullshitting the maid. It tilts and rotates. It's a full swaggle. Yep. Yep. And this is one of the movies where Milt Carl was let off the chain. Milt Carl was in charge of directing animation for a lot of this one. Uh, he still had to get in a big fight with Disney. <laughs> Because Anita dances, and they used a model yeah, for it. Of course they did. And Milt Carl is like, well, I don't see why you need that. And so in his scenes, where he didn't have any models to work with, he showed off. And that's <laughs> that's why this movie has this odd, odd contrast between Roger and Anita and everything else in their universe. I mean, this is a fairly standard thing for Disney characters. Our main couple are going to look, well, conventionally attractive. Mm-hmm. Um... And our side characters are going to look much more cartoonish and uh, not give too much of a fuck about realistic proportions and whatnot. There are also three shots that are just stills. I, in the, to, to be honest, I might imagine there's more than that, but which were the three that you noticed? Uh, in the chase, there's a sequence where it just zooms in on a still of Cruella's eyes. Ah, yes. There's, yeah. again, in the chase, there's another one where it's just a pan of the road, which, that's a background piece. And the third one, the one that really stood out to me at first, and I was like, geez, they are saving budget here, was in the park. Roger is laying on the ground uh, with his pipe, talking to Pongo, and his lips don't move. <laughs> it's, it's the sequence where Pongo's stolen his hat, and he's face first on the ground. They come back to the shot later, and he gets up and moves and talks. But there is a sequence where Pongo has stolen the hat, darted away, and Roger is saying something, and it shows you a still of Roger, and then it goes back. I kind of want to watch that again and make sure. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of budget-saving stuff. Uh, while we're on the topic, I spotted a uh, reuse of animations that I have not seen in quite a while from Disney. But yep. The, there's a three-quarter forward shot of just a beautiful animation loop of Pongo and Penny running towards the camera. Yeah. Uh, and they reuse that, I think, twice later in the movie. Yep. Just against different backgrounds, and there's one where Pongo's in the background and Padita's in the foreground, and... 
swap them around a bit, but it's still the same. And of course, a lot of puppies just running sidelong across the camera. Yep. Which we'll forgive them for, I think. Yeah, and in the puppy train, when they're all moving in a line, you can go look at puppy one, count one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, yeah. There's the same puppy. It makes and sense. And like, boohoo. <laughs> <laughs> we had ostensibly a hundred dogs, so yeah. I mean, I doubt we ever had a hundred dogs on screen, actually, but I do love our main character design. Like, those are some beautiful, elegant, leggy dogs. Goodness knows I like those. Mm -hmm. There is uh, another bit of technology pushing uh, in this one, which is this is the first Disney production and possibly the first animated movie, period, to use a new technique for cells. Does it involve cigarettes? No. Okay. It involves a brand you might recognize. Xerox cells. Oh, really? Really. This is the first one. And th and this is this is Walt pushing to get to use new technology. The the story as I've dug into it through these past few movies is he was rattling the cages of technology developers and go like, "Hey, what's some new stuff you've got?" That's why Snow that, that that's why Sleeping Beauty was developed on 70mm even though no one could screen it at that. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. That's that's him all along, right? Like, yeah. this is not big enough to contain my genius. Make it better. Keep up with me. Yeah. And and therein you have one of the tensions between Walt Disney and, and Milk Carl. And the rest of the nine old men. Like, it's not just Milk Carl. He's just the easiest name to attach to because he butted heads with Disney directly so much. Which is, Milt was a believer in growing a skill set. Milt was Milt very firmly believed that the thing that made Disney animation good was animators, whereas Walt was pushing to get new tech involved. And I don't know if that meant that Walt was dismissive of animators and their skill. <laughs> I know that Walt liked to be able to fire people. I mean, I I'm sure he wasn't dismissive of the value of a skilled animator, because like that he was an animator. Yeah. Like, this is what he was about. But also, um, he I mean He's a bit of a misanthrope all over, right? Yeah. I feel like he's one of those people who who would have thought the world was would just work so much smoother if everyone did what he wanted all the time and he just didn't have to deal with anyone who had opinions. He got to be rich enough that his deficient personality was treated as an eccentricity. Yeah, pretty much. But from all accounts, he was just a dickhead. I mean, a talented dickhead. Sure. <laughs> that the latter does not make up for the former. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other thing I have, which is still technically part of the Swaggle Watch, is the snow effect. Yeah, <laughs> oh. yeah I called it a couple of movies ago, didn't I? Oh. The, uh, yeah. I feel like they're worse in this, even. Like, there are a couple of them where I think it was done as a special effect. Yeah. Like, on-cell moving style of thing, rather than... Uh, in the car crash at the end, there's like yes. panels of snow being shifted around to yeah. make motion happen. Which has the same visual effect as Bald Mountain, where yeah. they move the cell around to get it to wobble. I, I'm not wild about it. I don't think it looked good, but, you know. It did not look good. You do you, you weirdo. It didn't even look a lot like snow, which which was a bit weird. I mean, we, I feel like people understand snow abstraction just fine. You can just make it goopy white. And as long as the, the scenery around it suggests that it's it's snowing or has been snowed, then people are just like, yeah, sure. Snow is, is basically whipped cream. Yeah, whatever. But I'll give them this. It was experimenting. It's true. It's true. Uh, let's see. I don't have any particular notes of faces we've seen in the past recurring uh, on characters. Though uh, you spotted as well, I think, several cameos from the Lady in the Tramp cast. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's great. No, that's cute. 
anyone tries to say that that means they take place in the same universe and are directly canonically connected and London and New England are therefore the same place, go to hell. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was cute to see them again. What people don't appreciate is that those animals were all actors and they did one show, <laughs> they did one movie in Suffolk and they did one movie in New England. Exactly. Glad we understand how this goes. It's the Ghibli star system, but for dogs. <laughs> That's Tesco, but Ghibli has a similar thing, definitely. Yeah. But it's Tesco who straight up called it the star system, because, I don't know, own it boldly if you always want to draw the same characters, I guess. This movie had a lot of stuff that was very... It was very much padding, but it wasn't padding the way that they used to pad things out. <laughs> There's the sequel... Like, you get to see a bunch of TV in this. And yeah, that's setting material... But also, it's really interesting. It's like, we'd rather be making a different movie. <laughs> it's weird, yeah. Like, normally you would see exactly enough of that show to sort of characterize what's going on. And then we would pay attention to what's actually happening. Yeah. But instead, we see a lot of their their dog cowboy western they're watching in London. And we see a lot of their hilarious dystopian criminal show, which is a legit funny bit. Like, yeah. That's a Actually, that would have been a moment for the double take now that I think about it. Because I looked at that and went, wow, I completely glazed over this when I was a child, but that's some reality TV show bullshit being forecast from the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool. I if, I if I saw an American reality TV show that was Guess My Crime, uh, you know, Take Off Tomorrow, I would not be surprised. <laughs> You'd just be like, yeah, that sounds about right. So uh, points for being prophetic, I guess. But yeah, like this movie is padded out in ways that make it take longer, but don't, they don't have the same character of, mm. uh, of a detour. It's just, this is a slow movie. I wonder if it was because the original story has a lot of like journey space in it, I think. And maybe it's just that they didn't really know how to do that in an effective way. Like we, we got some montage stuff of, you know, going through all the hardships of the running to the mansion and then going through all the hardships of the running back away from the mansion. Yeah. But, like, it it wasn't, like, you know, it didn't have that good montage quality or anything. It wasn't really satisfying. It almost, to, to invoke the Hallmark podcast that we listened to, it's a 70-minute film and they had 75 minutes of footage. <laughs> That's about right. Like, there's no weak bits that they could have cut that they, like, there's a bunch of stuff that you would look at and go, why didn't they cut this? And the answer is because they didn't have enough to make a movie otherwise which definitely follows uh knowing that they were pressed for budget uh, there was a scene that we looked at in a recent film what? where uh it sort of looked like a character was getting into trouble and then they just we just faded and it was done yeah and they had a scene like that where the the dogs swim the river with the ice flows in it yeah and, and like, you were expecting yeah, that to bring into cool. some drama but and then they just faded I'm yeah. like hang on a minute like we were doing something but uh to be fair, if you told me, no, that's fine, dogs can swim that, I, a dog-ignorant person, would be like, oh yeah, okay, I guess I shouldn't expect it to be anything else. Well, okay, that's fine, but they make a point of it being dangerous. The dogs are hesitant. Uh, they both have trouble swimming against the current for like a couple of seconds, and then we just cut. Uh, strange. Um, but it would make a lot of sense if, like you said, they just didn't have enough footage to, to cut very much at all. Uh, that would make a lot of sense to me. Let's see. Well, um, I mean, it's going to be a bit of a short one, but I guess if this movie is going to, you know, just skip past the idea of having any kind of grand thesis statement, then so are we. Yeah. <laughs> Which brings us very early on to Whatever Land. 
I have one note because the rest of mine got covered before now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I guess I'll start then. You can you can jump in when you feel the time is right. I don't have a whole lot either. I remember very much as a child the scene of watching the humans with their dogs and how they're designed to look like one another. And I remember specifically an episode where I was sitting in the vets uh, waiting and I had that exact same experience <laughs> of like, you know, a bogan and a bulldog and like a little girl with a tiny chihuahua and just... Like, I watched that scene happen, and, you know, 15 years later, I bought a Whippet. For those of you who who don't understand the joke because you don't know what I look like, just imagine a Whippet being walked by Todoro. <laughs> uh, did you also find it curious that they continually described themselves being a bit hard up for money and living in a small, modest house and having a fucking housekeeper? Yep. What was that about? That That is uh, definitely a thing worth noting. <laughs> if it was like a housekeeper who maintained an apartment building, that would make sense. Like, that's a thing that happened. But she clearly lives with them in that house, and mm. it's clearly a house. Yeah. So, I don't know, I guess, poor by middle class British standards. In the 60s. In the 60s. Remembering that middle class in Britain is not middle-class Australia or middle-class... No, middle-class in Britain is, well, I don't have a title. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. They, uh, yeah. They they seem to want to cast Roger as working class, but I'm not buying it. Mm. <laughs> I already complained about the, uh, the trope of the fathers waiting outside while the childbirthing gets done, uh, but I also did uh, concede in my note, well, I guess it's better than if they went in there and he just smoked the entire time. <laughs> Because mm. he would be. <laughs> the, it is interesting to note, this is one of the first movies I've seen where smoking is presented as having any negative effects. Right, but only Cruella's smoking. Not not only. Also, the burglar tips Ash into his brother's sandwich. Which, oh. that's an asshole move. And, like, it's it's not because the smoking is inherently bad, but there's just a moment of, like, oh, yeah, smoking produces an effect. I mean, we've seen smoking, smoking be used for ill before. Like, uh, we've got a uh, caterpillar blowing smoke into Alice's face, for example. And we have seen people uh, uh, dust off their cigars onto other characters at times. Yeah, I guess the si- I guess the caterpillar was smoking. Oh, he was smoking, not tobacco, I assume. But... Yeah, I didn't. I did not pass that as being in this. Like my brain is like, <laughs> that's not smoking. That's doing drugs. But you're right. You're right. That is definitely right. But the important thing is, it's you know when a hero smokes, it's fine. But yeah, we did see a lot of villainous smoking for once. Mm-hmm. Though what is in Cruella's cigarette, I do not know, since it produced haunted green smoke, but... Ah. And don't smoke in bed. That's trash. <laughs> don't smoke indoors at all. Well, but, yeah, yeah, but like, if in the... Like, you are right, smoking indoors is bad, but also, you're also right in that smoking is bad. Thanks. Great. Uh, got, yeah, okay. You know, you're, you're... Can you go back to 1960 and <laughs> tell them that? But what I will tell them, even in 1960, smoking in bed is trash. <laughs> You're a fucking heiress. Ashes on your goddamn fancy pillows. I guess so. I mean, I feel like if you're going to smoke anywhere, you may as well smoke everywhere because it's no less foul. Uh, But, you know, why are we judging Cruella like this anyway? After all, Dalmatians killed her parents. (laughs) Something dramatic probably happened to make her like this. I know that's the question I was asking all throughout this movie. What happened to this poor woman? I I need to understand her. I need to know what drive made her hate dogs. Oh, wait. Checks notes. She doesn't hate dogs. 
She just doesn't view them as having any kind of existence beyond as a property. You don't need to explain that. That's just how capitalism do. That's just what rich people are like. Mm -hmm. Alright, so we've checked off our fox bitches about a live action remake. Uh Uh-huh. And capitalism. (laughs) Grand. Well, it's so easy. Uh, Well, I don't know what I was making fun of. Here, I just have a note that says, yeah, it's not how puppies do. What was that about? Numerous things. Numerous things. <laughs> I mean, I don't expect them to act like realistic dogs. They are cartoon dogs. It's fine. Hamlet hang gliders here. <laughs> Sweet. I wish I knew what I was talking about. Oh, well. Uh, I I do think uh, uh, two weeks, three weeks, you know, how soon can they leave the mother? Two weeks, three weeks is is funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in the sense of characterizing Cruella as someone who doesn't give a fuck about how other things exist. Yep. Not the tiniest bit. <laughs> oh, and when she fronts up to Roger in that scene and like, turns <laughs> the pipe to the side. Yeah. That's a cute little bit of animation. Yeah, that would be fun touch. with her. Yeah. Yeah, I don't find her nearly as fun as some of our other Camp Disney villains, but... Look. She would kick a skeleton, but she wouldn't taunt it. <laughs> She'd probably get angry at it. Yeah. And at that point, like, you're letting the skeleton win. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, Maleficent is a hard act to follow. I can't really hold that against her. No. Did you find the puppy children's accents to be highly suspect? <laughs> I think those are all American kids, or possibly American adults. They're all American adults. Trying to do English. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bought most of the grown-ups' accents. I don't know if they were actually English or not, but they were faking it convincingly. Yeah. But the puppy voices were... We have some fun stuff when it gets to the voice actors. Oh, okay. Because I thought, I've got nothing to fucking talk about. I better be trolling the IMDBs. <laughs> do you want to talk about that now, or is that for no, another time? No, this is All Whateverland. Right. All right. Well, Whateverland normally comes last, so just no, check it in. what follows Whateverland is the box office. Oh, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> Whateverland is like the last big... Uh, segment. Uh, I wondered if the barking was identifiable Morse code at any point. I don't have the expertise to tell, but there's bits where it could be. There's bits where it couldn't be. I would be surprised. I know a little bit of Morse code, and I would be very surprised if there was Morse code encoded in that. (laughs) Um, I I find it endlessly funny that puppies are a matter for Scotland Yard in the first place. And now we get to the one note I have (laughs) <laughs> Which is, you can call Scotland Yard to help find your puppies, uh, yeah. and they won't do shit. <laughs> Akab. <laughs> well, as we know, good humans help dogs. Yep. So if you fail to help dogs, then you are a bastard. Absolutely. Though, now, now I've got that out. There is a second thing I noticed, which was honestly quite heartwarming, and I remember I might have reacted to it out loud. At the end, when the soot-covered dogs have come home, and they start leaving marks all over everything, and they start, like, smooshing on their owners, no one goes, oh, bleh, I got a whole bunch of soot on me. They're all just so happy to see the dogs and hug them that they get covered in prints and soot. And that's really sweet, because if your dog had been missing for two weeks and it suddenly showed up, you would not care if it was getting mud on you. You are hugging that dog. I've, in fact, hauled lost animals out of drains and gotten covered in crap, and you do not care. I mean, if you're a decent person. Yeah. Uh, I Scotland Yard also incompetent, by the way, because the, the farmyard animals refer to the mansion as the old Deville place. <laughs> so we know that they were specifically given Cruella as a lead, and they have quote-unquote investigated her, but they didn't check out her mansion in the country, which, which has nobody been abandoned. uses. Sorry. 
Which nobody uses. <laughs> which has been abandoned up until recently when the chimney is smoking. Yeah, so... Uh, Gotta be unrelated. Yeah. Uh, we'll just assume the cops in this movie are as smart as cops in most children's movies, which is to say, thick as a plaque. Yep. What a bunch of thickos. What a bunch of thickos. Uh, disappointed in, in the puppy fat shaming. Yeah. It's not like direct fat shaming, it's just whenever they need one to be incompetent or clumsy or, you know, getting separated from the pack and putting everyone in trouble. It's always gonna be Rolly. Yeah, it, he's the load. Yeah. Yeah! They have one puppy who's the load. And, uh, you know, fuck you. And tension arises multiple times from just the question of, ooh, is Rolly gonna get us caught? Yeah, and it's very directly his fault most of the time. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, there's also a bit of carrying puppies around by their collars. Never, ever, ever. Yeah, don't do and, that. And, <laughs> uh, catching them by their tails. Never, ever, ever. I mean, I guess if the alternative is they're going to fall off a cliff and die, then maybe, but... Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's a bit uncomfortable. Why not just have them pick them up by the scruff, like parent dogs would actually do? Don't like it. I think I have a theory on that, which is... Easier to animate? Well, I was going to say, it seems more challenging to animate. The differently (laughs) coloured, separate piece moving. And I wonder if that's a matter of the animators being like, Ah, well, you know what's going to make us look like we really know what we're doing? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not like it's a show-off move. I don't think anyone's going to be impressed by it. Yeah. But it also, you wouldn't think it'd be easier. Because you can get away with, with having... A dog pick up a puppy by a scruff with barely animating any of that. You know, connect nose to neck. Yep. We understand what's happening. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I did figure you'd have something to say about that, though. And I did. You were right. I try not to go too hard on realistic animal interactions in these cartoon movies for babies. But, you know, y- you can go too far. And speaking as someone who did at one point try to trim their cat's whiskers because I thought that was a thing that you might need to do to a cat based on cartoons. Aww. Um, uh, y- you know, it doesn't have zero impact. Yeah, you were lied to. <laughs> I was sucks. lied to and I hurt an animal because of it and that was sad. Uh, my final note is just uh, the one thing I do really enjoy about this movie is the sort of sense of community that that gets added into this story where they're like celebrities and everyone's expecting them to come and they're prearranging help for them and everything. That's cool. I wish we'd gotten more of that sort of leg of the journey. Like the the barn and the the moving van and everything. I like all those bits. Those are fun. Yeah. And they show, you know, people working together to try and help these. Like, oh yeah, everyone's heard about you. It's cool. I, I also quite like that. Um... This comes up in the casting in that there's a bunch of people who act in this movie for just like a couple of scenes who are, you know, it's just a, a nice thing to see. So you have like a surprisingly large cast for a movie that's got so little going on. <laughs> are we, is this going to be like we've got cameos and stuff? I don't know if you'd call them cameos. Okay, it's not like these are recognized voices. Well, okay, no, they would be at the time, but they would also be people who were already affiliated with Disney. So... Okay. You know, slice it however you want. The <laughs> David Ogden steers of their eras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Overall, I do enjoy this. Um, mostly just for the sort of stupid, happy, like, yeah, you know, and it all turns out okay. And yeah. I do enjoy how just absolute nerd Roger and Anita are for Dalmatian specifically. Like, <laughs> it does feel like a match made in heaven, because what other two people would would go along with this ridiculousness and be so delighted to suddenly have a hundred dogs dumped on them. You are presenting a 
pair of people who just had a massive economic windfall and a hundred kids. <laughs> I mean, I suppose if I suddenly had a massive economic windfall, I'd be perfectly happy to have a hundred dogs suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. All right, all right. And now, with all of that counting of dogs out of the way, I guess it's time to count money. All right. As we talk box office. Well... I mean, we know this is a drop in production costs. Yes. It has to be. That was the point of it. Um, do I think this did especially well in return? <laughs> I mean, did well enough that the studio didn't continue going under. I I don't feel like it was going to be fantastic. They did. They dropped back to a a, a a standard ratio where we're not in widescreen at this point. Yeah. That was interesting. It was a necessity of the Xerox cells. Right. Oh, oh, curious. That's interesting. That does make me wonder if they... That does make me wonder if they did better on the cell than I'm expecting, because it would have been more accessible to more places. Like, you know, an opposite scenario to Lady and the Tramp, basically. Possibly. Everyone can get this Disney dog film. It is more accessible than the Cinemascope versions of the films. You're right on that one. And it is cheaper. Uh, this movie was made on a budget of 3.6 million, which compares to Peter Pan and Sleeping Beauty's 6 million is a marked. Yeah, it's like half of what they spent on Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. It made in its first domestic release $14 million. Okay, right. So I, I probably did guess correctly that it was just easier to get it into cinemas. Yep, and it has been a non stop cinematic juggernaut. It's box office take lifetime with re-releases in 1969 so only eight years later 1979 1985 1991 it's got a 90s re-release or two yeah 2012 and 2018 <laughs> put this back in cinemas for the remake wow lifetime box office take of 303 million <laughs> in ticket sales wow but it's not just that this movie was good by the standards of their releases up until now this movie was one of the top 10 most this was one of the top 10 highest grossing films of 1961 and do you want to hear the competition for that i'm not going to give you the whole list because i know you're not going to know them i wouldn't recognize most of them but let's see if you recognize the names west side story uh i do in fact the guns of navarone Ah, I'm aware that that exists, but I thought it was a classic novel. The Absent-Minded Professor. That was from the 60s? The Parent Trap. That was from the 60s? So what you're running into here is that you aren't aware that both of those movies got remade. I'm clearly in remake territory, yeah. Yeah. Does that mean there have been three Parent Trap remakes? Yeah. Wow. Uh, There's probably been more. Parent Trap is a really easy thing to remake. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. But in this year... 101 Dalmatians was the 8th highest grossing film, and above it are a selection of movies that now are, like, trope-codifying, culturally yeah. significant juggernauts well, in their yeah. own spaces. And yet, it just did not impress us that much. As people in the 60s wanted something different. Well, also, you talk about how we're going into a dark age. I think if you are Disney, and you just build it out, if you're Disney, and you put out Sleeping Beauty, and it tanked, and then you put out 101 Dalmatians, and it makes five times its uh, startup costs, and it's easier to make. Like, I can see that just encouraging you of like, well, why the hell are we wasting our time with all of this other stuff when we can make these easier to make, faster to produce movies on smaller budgets and make more? 
there's something we're missing here in our formula. Well, I mean, that's why it's considered a dark age. It's not because these movies are bad. It's because these movies are a departure from the, like, very high art feel Mm. that Disney at its illustrious highs was delivering. Like, this is why people forget about the fucking package musical era as well. Because it was like, Disney put out amazing cinematic, you know, groundbreaking art pieces. And then did fucking Saludos Amigos and Bongo the Idiot Bear. And yeah, like it's, they're not comparable. And this is like, this is an era of a bunch of like lighter, uh, uh, just more casual, more fun stories with, with less, uh, less lush treatment, less realism, more, yeah, they're a bit Warner Brothers-y really. They're having more fun. Yeah. Is what it comes down to. And like, if you told me I could go forward or back, that I could go back to the stuff from Saludos Amigos era, or I could go forward into the stuff that I know I'm not looking forward to, I genuinely think I would much rather go forward. Oh God, yes. Like, these are not a bunch of Disney's greatest works, but they are so much better than when they really had it bad, like during that war period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know... <laughs> My favorite film for many, many years lives in this era we're just rolling into. You already know what that one is. Yep. I'm not a furry, I swear. So, as far as the extra details around this go, you know, the casting, because I thought well, that'd be a bit fun. Yeah, why not? Okay. So, there's a whole bunch of these names that you're just not going to fucking recognize. Probably. Just absolutely incomprehensibly difficult to translate to now. Because a bunch of these people were stars in their own right. But there is a name that will stand out to you. Mm. Thurl Ravenscroft. <laughs> Not because I'll recognize it, but just because he sounds like his parents got uh, shipwrecked off of Darkest Africa and he became a strange ape man. You don't recognize Thurl Raven- Ravenscroft? I do not. He acted in Bonkers. Oh, how could I not have recognized uh, such an illustrious role? Because we talked about him in the Pinocchio episode. He's the voice <laughs> of Monstro the Whale. I remember we talked about the voice of Monstro the Whale, but I do not remember that name. <sighs> wow. He's also the voice of Tony the Tiger. It's great. Oh, okay. That guy. Gotcha. Yeah. Who do you reckon he plays in this? Um, who do I reckon he plays in this? The Great Dane. No. No, wouldn't that have been perfect? Yes, that's why I said it. Ah. Well, someone boring then. Um. You know what else he did? He was the voice that sang Pink Elephants on Parade. (laughs) Alright, so he's got a bit of range. Thurl Ravenscroft kinda rules. (laughs) Uh, is he the captain? No, he's not. He's not the captain. But you're in the right space. Wait, is he Tibbs? He's the horse. He's the horse, all right, yeah. Uh-huh. But that's not the only cameo that's worth bringing to your attention. Do you remember the collie? Yes. Uh, the collie who invites them to stay at the dairy farm. I liked his. That collie is voiced by a man named Tom Conway. And that is a name that obviously you're going to go, well, what the hell? All right? Because it's not only a generic name, but the places where this man is famous are vague at best. But what might help? is if I, this is to put it in a broader context, 
This guy was the first actor to play a set of characters, one of which was the Falcon, which you'll be like, what the hell? Another which is Bulldog Drummond. Again, I expect a what the hell. And then to put those two in context, The Saint and Sherlock Holmes. This guy played serious detectives with hard-bitten edges. That is really interesting because I, for a second there, was going to ask you if I knew him from Great Mouse Detective, who's almost Sherlock Holmes. He had passed away well before the Sherlock Holmes... uh, He'd passed away well before Mouse Detective got underway. Okay. But he did act in a movie you might remember called The She-Creature. No. Yes. Oh, no. Yes. Nobody was good in that. No. (laughs) That movie had heard of acting, but it wasn't fussed about whether it got any for itself. He did all of his work for that movie in a week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, he saw what a trash fire this was. Did what he was getting paid for and got the fuck out of there as quickly as possible. <laughs> yes, he was the character Timothy Chapel in The She-Creature, which is to say he was the guy who would stand around asking questions of Dr. Carlo Lombardi. <laughs> he was the quote-unquote hero yep. of that movie. Yep, and if the hero is done with all of their shooting for a movie in a week, how much time does that movie take to make? I mean, that makes sense, since the, like that was the the protagonist of the story, but the character that people were supposed to be interested to see was obviously Dr. Carlo Lombardi. <laughs> One final detail, and this is because this person has no credit at all, but <laughs> well, they, they don't, they, this, character, this person has no acting credits at all. They don't have a Wikipedia page. I couldn't find them on IMDb. All I can have is this one role they did which is the Labrador Retriever, Uh is played by an actor with the name Ramsey Hill. And if you had an, if you were were some sort of witch and you cast a spell to turn a Labrador Retriever into (laughs) a working class adult human, (laughs) Ramsey Hill is reasonably close to the kind of name they get. Okay. With all that said, that's pretty much all I could wring out of 101 Dalmatians. Yep, that's just not a lot to be said. Mm. You probably know before you watch this if you don't like it or not. Yeah, it it's not harmful, it's not vile, it's not content warning, <laughs> it's just mediocre. Oh, yeah. We had no yikes door. Barely any. The closest you can get to a yikes door is the idea that they are somehow poor and struggling. And like that's your vision of poor and struggling yikes, dude. <laughs> yeah, right, but it's not really yikesy, is it? It's no. just like I don't know. Is it is it just that the idea of a nanny is so thoroughly ingrained with the American idea of British culture <laughs> that they're like, well, you wouldn't not have a nanny. <laughs> Do they have any children? No, but somebody's got to be the nanny. And, and I guess also, this movie does talk about a surprisingly graphic variety of ways to kill a puppy. <laughs> oh, that's true. Threaten very direct violence against puppies. The cutest of creatures ever created. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, they're actually... Stumbling upon British stereotypes has led me to one thing that I did note for this movie. I found it very odd looking at this and rolling it back through my memory and remembering that even though Disney has this massive boner for Americana, right? He is so big into American culture. I I wanted to go to Disneyland as a kid, but as an adult, I'm kind of like, eh, I can maybe take or leave it. It's like grotesquely bathing in American culture. And yet, for all that, 
all of these early movies are English. Yeah. Like, Dumbo was American. Yeah. In, like, noticeably American. But everything else is either, like, distinctly unplaced or is very directly in England. And uh, it's not going to end with our next one or two, I don't think, either. No. (laughs) And I think that's partly because of who the authors who were willing to license work to him were. Yeah, I suppose that's got more to do with it than anything. And, you know, a certain degree of palingenesis. We are in the period now from 1962 to 1964, where, in addition to the animated movies, right now, Walt Disney is negotiating for and trying to get made Mary Poppins. (laughs) Another incredibly British movie. Yeah, and like... (laughs) Or incredibly British property. The political elements in the background of all this are fraught and sad. It's true, it's true. And it, it does, it makes me a little interested to see the the bits of American that creep into them, therefore, like the the Dalmatian family all watching a Western. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't, I didn't watch TV in England in the 60s. I don't know. Maybe they did import a bunch of cowboy content from the US, but it just struck me as weird. I, if you wanted a go-to for a bunch of kids to be watching around the TV, it would be much more you know, BBC flavoured. Yeah, the relationship to sponsored advertising on the television in the 1960s in England, very different. Yeah, that felt very American, the talking dog biscuit. Like, that's a soap opera commercial, style commercial, basically, right? Here is a thing that we wrote explicitly to sell a very specific product, which has no connection to the property. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, Lady and the Tramp was... Uh, actually american as well okay so there's two that are like noticeably taking place in america yep and with that i think even with our best efforts this podcast (laughs) scrapes in at under an hour pre-edit hey look it was a short movie this is a short podcast radio and what's coming up next fox what is coming up next is it i can't remember is it cat movie next or is it uh more england uh because it's either the aristocats or oh wait no is it jungle book yeah it's jungle book no we're going back to england again for the sword and the stone it is sword and the stone okay yeah yeah right yes ah man those three were all floating around in my head and i couldn't quite place which one came first we're approaching basically the end of the uh, of a major arc of the podcast because the next one is the last movie to come out while Disney was alive and The Jungle Book is the last one he worked on. After this, we're off into the wilds. <laughs> Whatever will we do without Uncle Walt controlling? <laughs> I real, mean, why don't you make some good movies? <laughs> real funny. Now go get me a glass of cigarette. Mm-mm-mm-mm.